0: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network podcast and the New Books in Jewish Studies channel. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. I am honored and privileged to be in dialogue today with Dr. Joanna Newman. She is a Senior Research Fellow in History at King's College London. She is also Secretary General of the Association of Commonwealth Universities. We are here to discuss her new book, Nearly the New World, The British West Indies and the Flight from Nazism, 1933 to 1945, published in New York by Berghahn Books, 2019. Thank you for your generosity in being available for this dialogue today.
1: It's an absolute pleasure.
0: Thank you. To begin, please... Tell us about yourself, where did you grow up? What formative events in your life catalyzed the person you'd become as an adult?
1: I grew up in North London, um, and it wasn't until I was a bit probably a teenager that I realized that my two sets of grandparents both came to the UK from Germany, um, my father's parents came as refugees. My father was six when he arrived in the UK and came uh, with his family as a refugee from Nazi Germany. They'd been brought up in Berlin. Um, and I was always interested in the stories that my grandparents told me of the where they came from and what made them leave. And I think that had a big influence on me choosing to study history because I wanted to really understand um, what had happened, not from a personal perspective, but really from a perspective of understanding what the history was. So what was the context? How could that happen? Uh, What forces were at play? And so I'd studied the history of antisemitism and the history of the Holocaust. Um, and it probably hasn't helped explain in any way more because, as we know, the same horrors are happening again in in many ways in many countries, but at least it gave me a sense of understanding of what it was that my family went through and others also had to go through.
0: What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers?
1: What inspired me to write the book was that this is a story that hasn't been told before. Uh, I was happened to be in Barbados uh, and I found uh, a family with a, a surname Altman and it piqued my interest and I found out through a, a number of ways that there had been a Jewish community who came here as refugees, came to the British Caribbean during the Second World War and it fascinated me because it hadn't been told before and it also in some ways was um, a story I could tell. Uh, because I I got a grant from the University of Southampton to do a PhD and that allowed me to go to the archives in the United States, Israel, um, in the UK and in the West Indies to uncover this story from the perspective of refugee agencies, governments and the refugees themselves. Um, In terms of the message, I think there are lots of parallels to today's terrible and desperate refugee situation. The refugees fleeing from Nazi Germany in the 1930s also had nowhere to go. They were often sent on ships bound for nowhere. Um, They had to make do in really difficult circumstances. And in many cases, as refugees, they did manage to integrate into host communities and contribute in lots of surprising and wonderful ways. And I hope that my book gives that message that the people on boats today have the same aspirations and are leaving the same terrible situations and need to be given the same amount of humanity as those refugees fleeing in the 1930s.
0: What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell?
1: Well, my book tells a story of um two type three types of immigration to the British West Indies, um, of a relatively small group of people who managed to find somewhere in the world to escape to that didn't require visas. So the book is partly um, about those people themselves who left either Eastern Europe um, before the Second World War and were leaving for reasons of persecution but also economic deprivation and they got on boats to go to Venezuela or Argentina and the boats might have stopped in Barbados and they decided they liked it so they stayed and they were dry goods uh, merchants or they were peddlers and they began to make a living and those there are still families today from those uh, initial uh, refugees so that's one story. The other stories of refugees who were forced to leave Austria and Germany uh, in the late 1930s, uh, sorry, in the, um, in the late 1930s before war broke out, uh, and, uh, they were literally sent on boats and one of the few places in the world that didn't require visas were, uh, was Trinidad. And so suddenly in port of Spain in 1939, you had a huge refugee community, uh, in the middle of a Caribbean, uh, country. So, uh, that's the story. Then there's a story about refugees who had managed to find safety in neutral Spain. And because um, and they'd gone through to Gibraltar, the port of Gibraltar in Portugal. And because of the um, terrible um, situation of getting Allied airmen through neutral Spain and Portugal, the Allies felt that you had to get rid of this group of refugees who were stuck in Lisbon. And so they sent them by boat to Jamaica, it's a long story, but I tell it. Uh, And what's scandalous about this story is that actually it was a camp built for the Gibraltarians in 1940, and they initially built it for 9,000 people. In the event, most Gibraltarians went to the UK uh, and to Malta and only a small number ever used the camp. And although refugees from uh, uh, Lisbon did start to go there from December 42 onwards, they were in the hundreds not the thousands so it uncovers the uh it uncovers a story that hadn't been told before where um there could have been far more people probably rescued and sent to places like the West Indies um and weren't able to go my story is also about the role refugee agencies take in trying to help so a big theme of my book is the agency and helplessness of refugee agencies. On the one hand, they were instrumental in helping refugees find places to go, buying visas or permits, putting them on ships, giving them information about which countries did or didn't require um, landing permits when those refugees were in those countries of refuge, helping to provide grants for economic development or for just living, uh, and interceding on their behalf. On the other hand, they were completely helpless in that they weren't able to influence either Nazi policy, which was until the Second World War expulsion, or Allied policy, which was all the way through the interwar and war period, one of um, keeping the gates shut. So immigration regulations with a few exceptions were not changed. So it was places like Trinidad, um, Barbados, uh, Shanghai, um, some parts of Kenya, that um, by accident almost allowed people to reach safety when the immigration regulations in Canada, the United Kingdom, the United States and other places remained closed to refugees. So it's a story about colonial policy it's a story about West Indians and how they received the refugees. It, uh, a community who had gone through the First, and First World War, seen change, and in the West Indies were beginning to move towards wanting independence. Uh, it's a story about refugee agencies, and it's a story about the refugees themselves.
0: Can you tell us more about Gibraltar camp in Jamaica? What were its origins, can you tell us about its history, why is it so prominent in your study?
1: So it's prominent in my study because um, here is a tangible example of where things can be done. So in 1940, the British felt that Gibraltar would be a strategic uh, outpost and they wanted to evacuate the civilian population of Gibraltar. Uh, And uh, at that point they decided they would evacuate them to Jamaica and instructions were received in Jamaica to build a camp for up to 9,000 people. Um, Then what happened was uh, that uh, they couldn't uh, couldn't actually send them all to Jamaica um, and so the majority of Gibraltarians went to Malta and went to United Kingdom but some arrived uh, in uh, early December 42 and I remember going to Jamaica and interviewing some of the nuns who remembered getting the beds ready in this new camp that had been built in the hills, Mona, um, to uh, welcome the evacuees from Gibraltar. And this was a camp where you can still see remnants of it today. It's today part of the campus of the University of the West Indies. Um, But there were family accommodation uh, blocks. There was a big communal kitchen. There's a huge amount of material about life in Gibraltar camp that you can find in the public record office. Uh, And there's also a a lovely story that um, Diana Cooper-Clark has written with lots of memoirs from refugees living there. For me the interesting thing about Gibraltar camp is that in um, 1942 Sir Herbert Emerson who was the High Commissioner for Refugees found out that there was a camp that was largely empty and that could have housed refugees and he made an official inquiry to the British government asking whether those refugees who'd reached safe or neutral places could be moved there. The response or the internal discussion that the colonial office had is indicative of the kind of attitudes at the time towards refugees, which astonishingly, despite knowing about the extermination plans of um, Nazi Germany that were uh, broadcast on the 17th of December 1942, hadn't really changed the attitudes that if you let a few refugees out and in, you'll suddenly have too many to handle. So the response to Herbert Emerson suggested that the majority of the camp was going to be closed down and turned into military barracks and therefore there wasn't really room for any refugees to come. This was before. This was in uh, 1940 and 1941 that these discussions were going on. And in 1942, as I've already said, because of this group of mainly Jewish refugees who were stuck in Lisbon, the government changed its mind and decided to send them to Gibraltar camp. Where they joined the um, Gibraltarian evacuees. What um, is um, interesting is that despite the official version continuing to be that you couldn't risk sending any more across the Atlantic because of the U boat war, there were in fact further ships that went from um, Lisbon uh, to Gibraltar camp. It's time carrying men, uh, Jewish men of Dutch nationality, um, some non-Jews as well, to the camp where they were there for a short time and were then able to enlist in the allied forces. The majority of Jewish refugees in Gibraltar camp, because they had been rescued and thought they could then move on, felt quite upset and resentful that they were stuck in a camp in in Jamaica when they wanted to be able to get on with their lives. They were very well looked after in the camp, but again, they were still not free. And of course, it must have been very painful for many of them who knew through uh, broadcasts and through the Jamaica Gleaner, had uh, other newspapers accounts of what was happening to um, who they'd left behind in, in Europe. So there was a lot of frustration and letters went from the camp complaining about the circumstances. In some ways, that was rather unfortunate because some of the letters referred to concentration camps. Of course, we didn't have the benefit of hindsight at the time. A concentration camp might not have had the same ring to it. But what it meant was that it hardened the British administration to saying that if this is what these refugees are complaining about, I think a couple of letters ended up in the national press in the U.S., then we don't really want to let any more in. Gibraltar camp came up again in 1943 at the Bermuda Bermuda conference where various rescue operations were discussed, but nothing really major happened from that. There were no further movements to the camp. And at the end of the war, slowly most of those who had lived in the camp found places to go either to Palestine, to Canada, Uh, And to other countries, Uh, and the camp was closed down in forty seven or forty eight. But you can still see remnants of it, and um, it is now part of the University of the West Indies.
0: How does your book advance our knowledge of the history of Jewish Black relations?
1: I think it casts a light on a period of history that just hasn't really been known. the The uh, plight of Sephardic Jews escaping the exp- expulsion from Spain and Portugal and their moved to Brazil and then from Brazil to some Caribbean islands has been, you know, really richly documented. And there were a number of those Jews involved in the slave trade. Uh, they were not plantation owners, but some were involved in um, having slaves as shopkeepers, for example. Uh, and some in uh, insurance, which involved trading with slaves. And that is an episode which has been uh, examined and looked at. And of course, um, the Jewish community of Barbados and the Jewish community of Jamaica stayed until, um, in Barbados's case, the late late 19th century. In Jamaica's case, there is still a Jewish community that dates all the way back to the 17th century. And they're very integrated in, in Jamaica. In fact, you know, uh, national uh, treasures such as the Gleaner newspaper was founded by the Aschenheim family. So there's always been a mixed um, Jewish Caribbean black history in the Caribbean that is known. There hasn't really been this understanding of the Second World War experience, or the interwar and Second World War when refugees came again. And I've uncovered in my book some really interesting um Debates that were held in the local parliament, uh, debates that were held in school classrooms and calypsos that were written about Jewish refugees coming to uh, Caribbean islands. And what's interesting about it is that this is happening at the same time as Marcus Garvey is talking about uh, black nationalism and Africa. It's the same time that uh, George Padmore is in uh, Britain talking about um, uh, independence and freedom. It's the same time that labour uh, labour leaders in Caribbean islands are striking for better pay and uh, representation. It's the time when the West India Committee is looking into the appalling conditions in the West Indies and recommending investment and change. Uh, so there is. In the uh, debates that I've uncovered, there's a fascinating mix of real sympathy for the plight of these refugees. And in some cases, direct comparison between their plight escaping Hitler and the plight of their um, ancestors who had been enslaved, with an ambivalence about yet another group of European settlers coming in and creating more inequality in in islands which were already suffering from massive inequality and difficult conditions uh, themselves. So I think that my book casts a light on um, attitudes at the time towards Jews and Jewish attitudes at the time towards black West Indians.
0: What was the Sosua scheme? Why is it significant and noteworthy? Can you explain to our listeners and place it in context?
1: So that scheme came up at the Evian Conference in July uh, 1938 that President Roosevelt um, convened, and he convened it uh, in July to discuss the refugee problem. And um, there are lots of uh, books and articles about the Evian Conference, and it's famous for um, it's famous for not actually. Um, changing any of the immigration regulations and not not changing anything. And there is a book written, I think, by Maurice Troper about Canada, which says uh, the title of the book is called None Is Too Many, which was the Canadian representative at the time is what it said. And so, you know, Britain and other countries agreed to come to Evian on the condition that they would not have to change their existing immigration regulations. And so instead, country after country, talked about... um, all the wonderful things they'd already done and all the inquiries they were making on behalf of refugees, but no one was prepared to actually change um, their regulations. And remember, this is before 1956. There is no international convention to protect refugees. Refugees were being processed in the same way as immigrants would be processed on a selective basis. There is a fantastic account by uh, someone called Adler Rudel, who was leading the German Jewish organization. And he talked about the humiliation of his and other uh, Jewish refugee agencies made to wait in corridors uh, before the committees, and then were given sort of very short periods of time to make their case and explain why German Jewry needed an exit because there was no future for German Jews in Germany. Um, and this is in 1938 in the summer because, you know, they have been disenfranchised. They've lost all their rights. They're being imprisoned. They're being persecuted. And so they were looking for international powers to relax their immigration regulations and let them in. Nobody did. So the Sossua scheme, what's interesting about that is that at the Evian conference, it was one of the very few countries that said, we'll let refugees come to Sossua. There's a um but actually the scheme, just like many of the other agricultural schemes that we could talk about, was chimerical because really they were talking about a small number of settlers who could come to Sosua and start chicken farming and some did go there and uh, Marion Kaplan has written a wonderful book about the Sosua experiment um but it was never going to be a mass refuge for. Uh, What is the profile of a refugee for refugees who are middle aged or elderly or have had a profession like being an optician or a doctor or a dentist? um, Actually being able to be fit enough and able to turn your hand to agriculture is something that a younger generation can do. But refugee populations are not defined by being uh, ready and willing to do agricultural work. So although it was a generous offer and was taken up. It wasn't a long-term success. The majority of people who went into those farming experiments then moved into cities after a short while, I believe. I'm not an expert on socio, but that's what I believe happened. There were a number of other colonial schemes which were all at the worst cynical at the best well-meaning and really badly judged. So um, Roosevelt also had the President's Advisory Committee on Refugees look into Refugees in the Mindaro Islands, in the Philippines, in the Virgin Islands, um, all parts of the world that were not occupied where they felt they might be able to settle Jewish refugees. But of course, uh, and the refugee agencies, going back to my theme about powerlessness as well as agency, the refugee agencies always were the ones, the Joint Jewish Joint Distribution Committee would cough up the money to go on these expeditions to come back and report that either conditions were favourable for a small colony or whatever. So when the British government came up with the British Guyana scheme, shortly after the white paper, which closed the doors on Palestine, that really was a cynical move because although they um, announced it as a mass refuge scheme, it was always meant for very small numbers of people, 250 at the very, very most. And so that British Guyana scheme was then interrupted by the war breaking out and it
0: never happened. How does your book contribute to debates surrounding asylum today?
1: I think the plight of people on boats bound for nowhere um, is a direct um, comparison to people on boats today, trying desperately to cross the uh, channel to Britain. Uh, and or to other European ports and 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 sinking, there are a number of um, refugee voyages in the 1930s from the very famous St. Louis to the Struma affair, where um, or to the um, well, there are a number of boats which uh, which were bound for nowhere, and refugees had nowhere to go, and so. The differences between refugees then and now is that refugees supposedly have the protection of the United Nations uh, Convention on Refugees with a definition of what a refugee is and the necessity for states to give them safe harbour if they fulfil the definition. Uh, but the actual plight of refugees since the Second World War has increased enormously and the numbers of refugees are far higher than they were. So I think it's um, it gives a... Uh, a window into the fact that very little has actually changed. I'm just trying to find, there is a, here we go, Bernard Wasserstein from the University of Chicago said of my book, um, the book has a vital message for the worldwide humanitarian crisis of our own time as a new generation of asylum seekers knocks desperately at our doors.
0: There are many boats and ships alluded to in this book. One of them is the SS Serpa Pinto. Why is it significant? Can you tell us about it?
1: There are some fantastic photographs of people on board the SS Serpa Pinto leaving Lisbon uh, in December 1942 and sailing for uh, Jamaica, where when they li- arrived there, they were greeted um, by Jamaicans who then took them to the um, Gibraltar camp where they were kept safe until the end of the war.
0: How does your book contribute? To twentieth-century Caribbean history and historiography,
1: um, well, it's uncovered an unknown chapter of Caribbean history that that hadn't been written about before. Um, there, uh, it so it's contributed to. The way that the Caribbean, I mean, there are sections in my book that look at what happened to the Caribbean during the Second World War uh, and looked at West Indians who fought for uh, for Britain, uh, and it also uncovers the history of of these islands being refuge. And in some cases, you know, there are there are communities still living in not just the British, but the Dutch Caribbean as well, who've been there since that time and are West Indians of
0: Jewish descent. How much or little did local communities in the Caribbean know about the events of the unfolding Holocaust? What information was available to them?
1: It's an interesting question. Literacy was relatively high across British West Indian Islands and the Trinidad Guardian um like the jamaican gleaner and probably most papers on most islands would have had syndicated agreements with the associated press so uh, there was the, if you wanted information about what was happening there it was there you know it it um and um there were accounts of of persecution um i think the full horror of what happened, what was happening to the Jews uh, who who were trapped in Europe was made public on the 17th of December 1942 in these broadcasts that were made by the BBC and translated into a number of different languages and I found a sermon given by a rabbi to the American bases and broadcast to the internment camp in Trinidad in 43 that refers to that so I think the majority of people who were interested and could read would have been able to follow it if they wished to. But there were also popular forms, for example, like calypsos that were sung at carnival, uh, or um, just general talk. So, and there were also, of course, the those who fought for the Allies. So the merchant seamen, uh, so many of them died during the, the U-boat war, but they were bringing essential supplies from the Caribbean to uh, United Kingdom or to the U.S. and um, So they would bring back stories of what they saw and heard, too. So I think it, they were pretty well aware of what was happening.
0: What role did calypso music play in Caribbean responses to Jewish asylees? How did different calypsos respond to Jewish migration?
1: Well, I would have loved to have been able to play you some calypsos that we could play uh, today in uh, in this interview. Um, But unfortunately, none of the calypsos on Jewish themes were recorded. And Mm. that's because they were censored. And I've got all the censor remarks on probably about 12 to 14 calypsos on Jewish themes. They were either censored because they were too enthusiastic about Jews coming to the colony, or they had... Uh, or they were two anti-jews coming to the colony but either way they either fell foul of british immigration regulations or they fell foul of kind of um of uh, racist stereotypes so they weren't actually recorded but i like to think that the last carnival before uh, after before um they were stopped during the war but 1939 i've got photographs that I've been given by Hans Stepcher, who was one of the refugees who came to Trinidad, and you can see the carnival moving up the street. And in fact, I've got uh, in my back of my head um, some of the refugees who eventually live in Canada now, uh, talking about when they were 14-year-old boys arriving in Trinidad and hearing the sound of the carnival. And this is the sound of Calypso. It's the... the the sort of um, joyous and um, funny and sharp and critical commentary on life in Trinidad. Uh, And they uh, would have danced to it or walked to it and heard these, hopefully, I think they would have heard calypsos about the Jews coming to Trinidad that they might not have been able to buy or listen to as a a record. One's by Charlie Gorilla Grant. And uh, it talks about how uh, Jews are tumbling out of Germany Will make Trinidad and New Jerusalem. So you know this was just referring directly to all these refugees who are arriving daily on ships from uh, in Port of Spain.
0: How did Marcus Garvey perceive Jewish migration to the Caribbean? What perspective did Garveyism and later adherence to Garveyist thought?
1: I found a letter the... on,
0: on Jewish asylum seekers.
1: Sorry, I I found a letter in the National Archives. I think from Marcus Garvey talking about the Jewish issue and refugees because he was talking about it in reference to the potential British Guyana scheme that had suggested that Jewish refugees settle in British Guyana and uh, at the time he was developing Garveyism and the idea of African nationalism and so he uh, equated the Jewish plight with the African plight But he said that Jews should have their own homeland. So in a sense, he was a proponent of a sort of Zionist idea. He said they shouldn't have a homeland in the Caribbean because they're not from the Caribbean and that should be uh, restricted to West Indians. So he had a kind of sympathy for the need for a homeland. He just felt it shouldn't be in his backyard.
0: Who were Manfred and Malka Goldfish? Can you tell their story?
1: I'd love to tell their story. So uh, Manfred, I start my book with um, a, um, I start my book with uh, a manuscript that was written by Manfred Goldfish a few years um, after he'd found Sanctuary. uh, And he describes their journey to freedom. Um, Shall I read some of it?
0: Sure, sure, that would be wonderful.
1: So uh on New Year's Day 1939, Manfred and Malka Goldfish stepped ashore into the heat of a Trinidadian winter. In Port of Spain, it was 30 degrees centigrade and brilliant sunshine. Their journey to freedom had started two weeks earlier as they left an icebound Hamburg to begin their lives as Jewish refugees in the Caribbean. And then I have his uh, manuscript here. On a cold day in Königsberg, there was nothing else left but to say goodbye to a few friends. And at the end of November, we were ready to leave the now gray and wintry Baltic. We boarded a train to Cologne to spend the last week with my parents. And then the sad moment of parting had to be faced. There were no tears, no sighs, only grim faces all around when the whistle blew and the Hamburg Express started to pull out of the station. And of course, they don't see um, them again. What had happened was that Manfred Goldfish had married uh, Malka a few um, a few months before Kristallnacht in November 1938. And after that, they realized there was no place for them in Germany and they tried to find somewhere to go. And um, they tried to get visas for the United States. And they couldn't. So in desperation, they contacted a shipping agent who sold them the last two tickets for a berth on the SS Cordillera bound for Trinidad. It would cost Manfred almost all he had left in his bank account. But watching the still smoldering ruins of one of the synagogues he paid up. Saying goodbye to his parents in Hamburg, he did not register the full importance of the farewell. In a memoir written years later, he recalled... Gradually, the figures of my dear parents, Lena and Eugen Goldfish, faded into the steamy mist of the big railway junction, and I had a feeling, almost a premonition, that I would never see them again. In 1942, his parents were deported to Theresienstadt, where they both died within a year of each other. Now, I found out about this story because their, uh, Manfred's daughter, Sue, got in touch with me out of the blue uh, from Australia because uh, she'd read uh, my book and wanted to, or she'd read my PhD thesis and she wanted to know more about her family. Um, So we uh, traded information and it turned out that Sue, who's done a fantastic film called The Last Goldfish, had no idea about her father's plight from Germany because he had got divorced in Trinidad from his first wife from Malka, met a British nurse, married her and had had Sue and Sue spent her first few years in Trinidad growing up there. She then found out from her father years later what happened and she's made this film about her family. She um, went back to Germany and she went to the Hotel Leuvenstein which was where her grandparents came from. She also found out that uh, Manfred before he got divorced from Malka had two children and uh, Malka and these two children emigrated to Canada, and um, she was reunited with this family, her half brother and sister. And when she got there, um, Marion Vagslag, uh, her um, her um, half sister, gave her a silver fish knife and fork, which I've put in my book which was from uh, her grandparents' hotel, the Hotel Levenstein. So the goldfishes are very important to me for my story because, first of all, you've got a full account of a refugee journey to Trinidad. But I've also got um, an account from the daughter of one of these refugees uh, what it was like to grow up in Trinidad and what it was like to piece back a memory of what had happened to her and her family.
0: Who was Cecilia Razovsky? Why is she significant? Can you tell us about her?
1: I'd love to tell you more about her. I'd like to write a book about her. She was, uh, she worked for the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee. I think she was mainly based in the United States, but she might have moved to other uh, countries at some point. She was a senior member of uh, of the joint and so she was, um, she appears in all sorts of committee minutes and notes from the Joint Distribution Committee discussing either getting refugees out of Germany or providing for them when they were in different countries. And there was a committee on South America that she was um, very involved with. My favorite quote from Cecilia Rozowski is in the 1930s, when, as I've mentioned, the President's Advisory Committee was looking for all sorts of places to take people to for refuge. Uh, And they were completely unrealistic places, usually involving agricultural land that had not been used before, hard labor, you know you need youth and to, to be able to do that and so she she wrote um to one of the suggestions about sending refugees to alaska and another one sending them to kimberley western australia uh, that we get letters all the time to send the refugees to the land but there's absolutely you know they don't understand that that's a, not something we can do so i think what i got from cecilia rozovsky and what i admire so much is her tenacity and fortitude the way that all the way through the interwar period and wartime period when she would have known exactly what was happening or she would have known a lot about it, she was able to be a steadfast presence and do her best to try to help people despite the appalling frustrations she must have felt given the helplessness that agencies like the Joint despite the relatively large sums of funding that they had. And she was a a woman in a senior position when at the time... I think most of those senior positions were held by men. And I would like to find out more about Cecilia Wazowski than I know already. And I'm sure there are some people who do. And I I, I will um, hopefully have time at some point to get in touch with them.
0: Who was Sir Cosmo Parkinson? Why is he a person of prominence in your narrative?
1: Well, uh, if you read the book, you'll see that Sir Cosmo Parkinson was someone who was very senior in the colonial office, and, um, And he was colonial secretary for a while. So he was in charge of a lot of the, uh, he was in charge of the British Department that mainly said no to opportunities for Jewish refugees in the 1930s to find um, uh, opportunities in the colonial empire. Um, And he is quoted as saying quite near the beginning of Michael Connors think that uh, that no one will believe that there isn't a part of the British Empire where we could place refugees, but there isn't. Uh, so it, it, he, he says it in some way like that. And um, so he was a very senior figure in the colonial office and British government.
0: What was the Chief Rabbi's Emergency Council, the CRREC? What is the significance of this entity in the story that you tell?
1: The Chief Rabbi's Religious Emergency Council Um, was run by Rabbi Hertz, and they tried to keep track of what was happening. And um, the reason I came across them was that they had recently been deposited the papers in the uh, archive at the University of Southampton, where I was studying. And uh, there is a huge amount of material there. And it's a committee that tried to help, tried to intervene, tried to get visas, for example, I think they were involved in the visas to curacao scheme but they knew about um refugees who had found their way to the west indies and they knew about the gibraltar camp episode and so i was interested in how they talked about it and they were powerless in the sense that they had no money it was really the american jewish organizations that had more money than the uk ones by that time they were pretty exhausted but they were um they were actively concerned about the plight of refugees for example in internment camps in uh, Trinidad and Jamaica during the second world war when they were interned and they tried to write on their behalf and look after their welfare.
0: How did you locate your sources? What challenges did you encounter?
1: It was wonderful trying to uncover this story because it was so little known. Um, the, the first and the first and obvious place I went to were the National Archives in the United Kingdom because they had all the official records of the Foreign Office, Home Office, Colonial Office. And so um, it was a question of going through the indexes at the time and, um, and then finding that there were also um, papers in uh, Trinidad and Jamaica of the local legislatures as well. So I found those papers. The papers of the refugees themselves, or of the agencies that looked after them were more scattered. Uh, And it was a bit of detective work working out because I was interested in the files of um, various different Jewish organizations. I looked at Hysem and Hayas. Uh, I looked at the World Jewish Congress, and I looked at the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee and the Chief Rabbis Religious Emergency Council. And these papers were scattered between the archives in Yad Vashem in Israel, um, in uh, the, They're now collected together in the Center for Jewish History in New York, but at the time, YIVO had their own archive, um, which also had Hysim and Hyas in it, and at the moment, I think World Jewish Congress papers are still in Cincinnati, so they were very scattered and digitization wasn't anywhere near where it is today. Um, so there was a quite a lot of detective work finding stuff. There was also stuff in the National Archives in the US um, uh, around some of the territorial schemes that I was looking at. So, uh, and also from um, the Imperial War Museum, I found letters and um, uh, from um, from some of the West Indians who had been impacted by the refugees. And of course, I found um, the um, actual copies of the calypsos that were banned in the archives in Trinidad and the official records um, department. So it's a huge mix. For my book, it's a huge mix of official and unofficial sources, of letters, of mementos, um, of calypsos, um, but also of very official notes from officials to each other, considering what policy should be in the colonial empire towards refugees.
0: What are some of your book's novel insights regarding the history and role of jewish organizations during this period of time can you comment on the history of hias the world jewish congress and other bodies in light of their work for jewish migration to the caribbean
1: well they were um they worked i think in the interwar period they worked together relatively well there was because of the Uh, immigration in the 19th century, a really well-established network of Jewish agencies and refugee ports that helped to process refugees from Eastern Europe to the West. Um, And so they were already there. So they had quite a lot of experience in processing refugees and migration. What they weren't prepared for, of course, was what happened in Nazi Germany, where refugees were literally expelled from the country um, and all their goods taken from them. So you had the issue of penniless refugees um, and they were instrumental in many ways. They were instrumental in publishing information about where you could go. They were instrumental in, in some cases, helping financially to purchase whole boatloads of um, places to put migrants on, to let them go to other places. Probably one of the most important roles was the diplomacy that they tried to play in interceding on behalf of refugees who were stuck between different destinations that didn't want to let them enter. The most famous example of that, of course, is St. Louis. And there has been some recent critical studies of the role the joint did play in the negotiations to help passengers find safe harbour. So they were... At the same time, it would be an interesting question to find out how many of those refugees who did escape Nazi Europe did so with the help of refugee agencies and how many went in any case or even of those who went independently, I imagine to some extent they had some something to do, some brush with those refugee agencies. For example, those refugees who were housed in Gibraltar camp in Jamaica were sent there either by the Polish government in exile or the um, Netherlands government in exile. But in both cases, it was the joint that funded those journeys and their stay in the camp.
0: What was the Hilfsverein? What was its role in German-Jewish emigration to the Caribbean?
1: Well, the Hilfsverein was the... Um, organization, help organization, if you like, the Juden in Deutschland. It used to be called the Hilfsrein der Deutschen Juden and of course the Nazis made them change it to Jews in Germany from German Jews and they were disbanded I can't exactly remember when, I think probably 38, 39 but before that they they helped to uh, organize emigration of Jews who wanted to leave Germany.
0: Which books on Caribbean history in the early 20th century had the greatest impact on your research and thought process in developing this study?
1: Um, So many. Eric Williams, I think, comes to mind. His Capitalism and Slavery is probably the work that has really influenced me. Uh, It's a masterly work, and I think it's been republished recently, uh, but that was a huge influence on me.
0: What does your book teach us about trauma?
1: I think Uh, The responses of refugees. Imagine escaping from a concentration camp, giving up everything that you have and being told that you'll never go back to that country and and possibly leaving people behind. So you've gone through a really traumatic voyage. You suddenly arrive in a tropical island like Trinidad uh, and you have no idea what you're going to do. But you set yourself up and you find ways to make a living And you might open a cafe or a hat factory or work for somebody else. And then war breaks out and camps are built where you're told you need to stay in turn for the duration of the war because of the issue being your nationality again. So I think it was incredibly traumatic, particularly for older refugees who'd managed to escape, who knew the full intent of what was happening to those who weren't able to escape and were then imprisoned again? I think it had a huge toll on those people. And in fact, uh, there are stories in my book. Somebody hanged themselves in one of the internment camps. I must stress that they were treated well. There was no cruelty in those internment camps, and um, they had, you know, food and 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 court, safe quarter. But they were imprisoned it, it, or interned during that period. I think for younger refugees, uh, it was exciting to arrive in in Trinidad, for example, on a boat, and and this extraordinarily um, welcoming, bustling, colourful place uh, was an adventure. Uh, Again, an internment camp probably didn't affect them As badly. In fact, they were able to go to school, uh, they were able to continue to live. It was the, I think the trauma impacted on the older people, particularly. What I don't know is that those people who had come as refugees who were young people probably felt, I think most refugees feel trauma at some point in their lives. It's the dislocation from where you've come from, it's understanding the story and knowing what happened to those that were left behind. So I imagine it was traumatic for every every refugee. It will always have been traumatic and it always
0: will continue to be so. What was the significance of the Bermuda Conference for the events that you narrate? What were its consequences for Jewish migration to the Caribbean? Can you say more about it?
1: Yes, there were very few consequences for Jewish migration to the Caribbean because the Bermuda Conference didn't really settle anything. So... The Evian conference was held in, there are almost like two place markers around the question of rescue and um, uh, refugee migration. The Evian conference in 1938, where very little happened, and the Bermuda conference in 1943, where again, very little happened. Both times there was public um, anger about what was happening and anxiety about what was happening to uh, persecution persecuted minorities and Jews in Nazi Germany in the 1930s and then knowledge of the planned extermination of European Jewry by 1943. So remember it had been broadcast in December 42 uh, and there'd been public anxiety and anger and a wish for their governments to do something. There'd been big marches on um, in Washington. Um, there had been church groups and Quaker groups and all sorts of civil society groups got together and said, you have to do something to rescue those still able to be rescued. What people didn't know is that there were very few people still to be rescued at that point. And so they held a, the Allies held a conference in Bermuda. Why Bermuda? Because it was very easy to exclude press from going there. It was difficult to get to. It was a closed conference. You can read some of the conference transcripts. Bermuda, um, Gibraltar camp came up there as a potential place to move people to, but it never actually happened. The first time that there was any change in uh, approach was in 1944 when the War Refugee Board was fat, was formed. So the Bermuda Conference was a massive disappointment and um, a failed opportunity to potentially help those that could still be helped reach places like Gibraltar Camp from neutral territory.
0: Which revelations presented in your book might most surprise a student or scholar of the Holocaust? which insights presented in your book might most surprise a student or scholar of colonialism in the Caribbean?
1: I think the surprising thing about um, this history is that it happened at all. I think you could say that it's shocking that it happened because the United States and the United Kingdom should have opened their doors, but it's also in some ways almost wonderful that there is this um, unlikely pairing of Jewish refugees desperate to escape And West Indians, generous in their welcome, despite having the experience of slavery and colonialism that they have come from.
0: Can you tell us about Edgar Pereira? Who is he and what is notable about him?
1: I would love to know more about Edgar Pereira. He's a bit of a hero of mine because he was, he claims to have been the only Jew born in Trinidad. It looks as if he came from, Um, Morano. so he came from secret Jewish stock so Trinidad had been a Catholic island for a long time under Spain and so it looks as if he might be of Jewish descent from the original settlers who'd come then Uh, and he was based in Trinidad and he was one of the people first people responsible for contacting the Jewish Joint Distribution Committee and telling them that you did you only needed landing permits for Trinidad you didn't need visas And so he was partly responsible for helping to direct agencies, to direct refugees, to find safety in Portispoin and Trindad. He was often in touch with the Joint about the plight of those who had arrived and helped to arrange housing and accommodation, uh, helping to arrange um, the submitting of a grant that the Joint gave for economic development, Unfortunately, for reasons I haven't found out, he became extremely unpopular with the Jewish Refugee Agency, organisations that were formed by the refugees themselves. And there were quite a few arguments between them about how to represent them to the governor of Trinidad, for example. So I get the impression about Edgar Pereira that he was a troubled man who was also a bit of a hero because he... He really he gave everything he could, I think, to help get people to Trinidad and then help them when they were here. He ended up dying of leprosy, and I think he's buried in Trinidad. But it's again, it's a very intriguing story that I would like to know more about.
0: Can you tell us about Ernest or Edward Schoenbeck? What does his story reveal?
1: Well, his story is partly responsible for me writing my book because. I was doing a study of the 18th century Jewish community of Barbados and I went to a a warehouse in the east end of London, Sugar Wharf, where Tate and Lyle have their um, archives and I went into the archives looking for stuff on the sugar industry in the 18th century and I found an archivist sitting in the middle of the room and he was throwing papers away. And uh, he said, we're doing a big sort out and you can look through these papers if you want. So I did. And I suddenly found all these papers about someone called Edward Schoenbeck. And I thought, Schoenbeck, that's a German name. What's that doing there? And I found correspondence between the chairman of Wisco, which is the West Indian Sugar Company, uh, and the governor saying, please release this Jewish chemist from internment. And so I kind of held it as a placeholder that this was a story I wanted to find out more about. I went away, I did my PhD. And I wrote to Edward Schoenbeck and found out that he was living in New York. And on my first trip to the United States, I went to New York and I met Edward at the Mozart Cafe. uh, And we had a, a meal together and he told me about his story. And Edward had left Germany as a chemist. He then found a job with the West India Company in Jamaica. was employed as their chief chemist and in 1939 he was interned and his case became a bit of a cause celebre where the debate was about whether a German Jew could be still loyal to Nazi Germany because of their nationality more than their religion and so there's quite a lot of correspondence about him and what happened in the Daily Gleaner. Um, But he was then released after internment, stayed there for a few years longer and then made his life in the United States. And I had the honor of knowing him for a number of years. He died a few years ago.
0: What can you tell us about Hans Stetcher? What can we learn uh, about him from from the book? So Hans Setcher
1: was an amazing man. I had the privilege of meeting him in Trinidad, and I did an interview with him for the BBC. He came to Trinidad as a 14-year-old and stayed, and he came with his father and his uncle and his aunt. And in fact, there's a very poignant uh, photograph I took, which I think is in the book, uh, of him standing by the gravestone of his aunt Wilhelmina Baltinista and his father Victor Stetcher's gravestones in this cemetery. And he talked about his aunt being someone who apparently was quite famous in Vienna um, and uh, a, a writer. And he talked about the plight of refugees by saying that uh, when you have been uprooted You never plant roots in the same way again. And so she never wrote again when she'd gone to Trinidad. But they were saved. The family was saved. And he, after the war, they made, um, they created a series of, of shops that became Stetcher dry goods stores and duty free shops. So they became quite well off and had a fantastic life where Hans also became the honorary consul for Austria, the post-war Austria. And um, I met him in his house overlooking the bay and he is a real collector. He had hundreds of images of what it was like to live in Trinidad during the war. So he had um, uh, photographs of the... Uh, dramatic society, of the Wietso Club, of the Football Club, of the Theatre Review Club. So you've got a real sense from his collection of artefacts on refugees of what it was like for refugees to live in Trinidad during the war and sorts of people there. Uh, Sadly, he died a couple of years ago. And that graveyard in Trinidad is full of a number of maybe 30 or so refugee graves and it's a very poignant site and I hope that someone is looking after it now in the way that Hans Stetcher had been the custodian of it during his lifetime. Can you tell us about
0: the picture and image in image 6.4? Who's depicted there? What, What story is told in that photograph?
1: I will. So that photograph is a picture of somebody called Arnold von der Porten who when the photograph was taken was 101 with uh, a friend of mine called Professor Jeffrey Giles. Now, Professor Jeffrey Giles was on a mission that I sent him on. I knew that there was a, um, from Arnold's memoirs, Arnold had been interned uh, in a camp in Jamaica, not Gibraltar camp, but a normal internment camp. Uh, And, He had been going to classes after the war with Edna Manley, the uh, ex-Prime Minister's wife, and had done an amazing portrait of her, uh, which is figure 6.3. And um, what's wonderful about that portrait is it shows her looking very fierce. And in Arnold's biography, he talks about all these debates they had about Jamaica. And for me, that photograph also represents the fact that, you know, these refugees became in some ways embedded in Jamaican Communities and society and politics, and so I wanted this picture in my book, but I couldn't find Arnold von der Porten, and I couldn't find the origin of the painting, and I couldn't get a photograph of it. I uh, met lots and lots of dead ends until Jeffrey told me that Arnold was still alive. He was living in Florida, and got me a phone number, so I rung the phone number and there was Arnold on the phone, uh, sounding very full of life and said yes, and the painting is on my wall. So Jeffrey, living in Florida himself, uh, Professor Jeffrey Giles very kindly went to Arnold's house, turned up and took some photographs of the portrait, which I now have in my book. But what I didn't know was that he then sent me another photograph, And that photograph is of him sitting on the sofa with Arnold von der Porten, and they're holding up a blanket. And this blanket had been um, created in probably 1941 or so in the internment camp, which was very, very cold. And they created a loom out of fence posts and they had an amount of butchered wool. And from this butchered wool and this the loom that the refugees created, they made a blanket. And so the blanket on the sofa that Jeffrey's holding up with Arnold von der Porten uh, is from, is a blanket that he weaved himself from the internment camp from um, the 1940s that he still has with him in his home in Florida today. So it's a really lovely story and only happened, came about, I only knew about it because I wanted to get this image in my book of this portrait that Arnold made of uh, Edna Manley.
0: Thank you so much for sharing it with with us. And thank you so much for all you've shared with us in our dialogue today. Um, I cannot thank you enough. Uh, It was a pleasure. Before we end, would it be okay to ask you to tell us what you're working on next as your current project? Uh, what kind of research have you been engaged in since the completion of this book?
1: Well, as I mentioned, I'm very interested in Cecilia Razovsky, but I'm also interested in an updated study of the role of refugee agencies during the Second World War. I think there are really interesting parallels to the dilemmas that refugee agencies face today. Mm-hmm. And um, Yehuda Bauer did a fantastic two volume biography of the joint, but that was quite a long time ago. And so my interest now is to update that and look at the role of refugee agencies from a sort of 21st uh, century perspective, knowing all the things that we've known since uh, those studies were
0: done. I wish you best of luck in that extremely important research. It couldn't be more necessary.
1: Thank you very much.
0: As we end today, uh, I am your host on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. I've been absolutely humbled and honoured to be in dialogue with Dr. Joanna Newman. She is Senior Research Fellow in History at King's College London. We have been discussing her new book, Nearly the New World, The British West Indies and the Flight from Nazism, 1933 to 1945, published in New York by Berg-Hahn Books, 2019. Joanna is also the Secretary General of the Association of Commonwealth Universities.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.